Blog Talk Radio. Of its workers 
by up through 75 years of pension security. This is, of course, unheard of and unprecedented and doesn't exist in any other form of government or in our corporate culture. Nowhere is there such a requirement. And financially, it's completely untenable, and it is literally breaking the legs of the United States Post Office. They cannot survive with such a severe mandate. And in fact, they are falling. And jobs are disappearing by the thousands, actually, at this point, as are post offices themselves. The flow of mail is shrinking, and we have a major problem on our hands, completely unnecessarily, but upon closer look, something that was discussed by Amy Goodman just this morning on her wonderful show, Democracy Now!, with Representative Dennis Kucinich, who many of you who listen to A Better World with any regularity have heard uh, Representative Kucinich on our airwaves talking about a number of things, including enlightened politics, weighed in to say that this is a lobbying effort by different corporations, especially the banking system, to literally cripple the standing government agency and all in the interest of privatizing. Yes, privatizing the post office. They think they can always do it better. But the thing that is really crippling it is this insane 75-year pension mandate by law, unconstitutional as it might be. And there is no way for this organization, this agency, to survive this severe, severe requirement. I'm bringing this up here now on A Better World at the top of the show, so that people can become aware of it, research it, because you will not hear about this in this light of who and why this is happening, who is behind it, and why they're behind it, on your ordinary commercial airwaves, TV or radio. You will not hear that this is actually a lobbying plan behind the scenes by the banking industry which is seeking to cripple it, they're making it seem as though the post office cannot manage its own finances. It is actually squandering resources of the United States tax, taxpayer, but that is just the opposite of what's true. But everything is involved with the frame of the presentation. And that's why I'm taking a moment to share this with you so you can write in to your respective congresspeople and senators and make a point. Otherwise, you will see the evaporization, the vaporization and evaporation of our long-standing, much-needed, most important United States Postal Service, truly a pillar of our culture and society. So with that said, I leave it in your hands. Please do what you can as uh, sacred activists and see what you can do about helping us steward our future in the right direction. 
So with that said, just to remind you, you are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World Radio. We're on every Wednesday here on Blog Talk Radio. Our website is www.abetterworld.tv. You can also tune in to A Better World TV every Tuesday evening at 10.30 New York City time, Eastern Daylight Time, that is. And it happens, interestingly, that this week is all about peacemaking. Uh, last night we aired uh, some footage that I have of the Mohawk leader of the Turtle Clan, Jake Swamp, who was on our show several times, and I had the honor and privilege of getting to know many years ago and were, was quite friendly with him while he was developing the Tree of Peace Society. And Jake Swamp would go around the world at the invitation of different governments to plant trees in the name of peace, always with a beautiful ceremony to commemorate the entire idea and virtue of peace. So that was last night, and today we are continuing this theme with James O'Dea, who is just a brilliant, renowned figure who has been involved in international social healing and has conducted healing and reconciliation dialogues for well over 20 years and was also the director of the Washington Office of Amnesty International. And that was for 10 years. Additionally, James was the president of the Institute for Noetic Sciences, which many of you know about. I've had various uh, members and uh, staff people of uh, the Institute on a Better World, Marilyn Schlitz, Dean Radin, and others over time. And now James O'Dea, who is focused on the subject of peacemaking, his last book, latest book, Cultivating Peace, Becoming a 21st Century Peace Ambassador, uh, published by Shift Books just actually just over a month ago. It's being heralded as a brilliant new roadmap for peace building among thought leaders, academics, and activists. So it's really uh, with great pleasure that I invite James to speak with me for this show and discuss the uh, the details and the tenets of peacemaking in this day and age. And James, are you there? Yes, very much. So. Excellent. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks. Great to be with you, Mitchell. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. You know, I've got to say, I you sort of just began to rock my world relative to peace, even in the um, initial uh, chapter or so of your book, because you really hit something on the head, and I'd love to hear you speak about it, that when we think about peace, we almost think of this ascetic, stoic notion of people holding on tight to their emotions so as not to um, rock the boat. But yet you present an idea of a living, vital, dynamic notion of peace where self-expression, you could say, is at its core. And at the same time, needless to say, there has to be a certain level of emotional maturity and psychological bearing witness and monitoring so one doesn't go overboard, but that it's a living, even humorous, um, very humane uh, activity 
of peacemaking. And I, I've just got to say at the outset how much I appreciated that kind of demythologizing one image that I think is uh, prevalent in our society and, and uh, replacing it with a much more lively notion that's dynamic. Could you comment on that? Sure, yes. Well, I say the uh, fundamentalists are just not having fun, are they? And right. <laughs> there is that sort of hyper-seriousness that is, in fact, itself an indicator of something that, a place we don't want to go. It's that place where you're so hyper-serious that you fall desperately outrageously in love with your own truth to the extent that there's no room for anybody else's truth to breathe. I call it mm. rigor mortis of the truth. You know, every <laughs> every jot and tittle lines up and you can prove everything about your point of view, but there's no space, no breathing space for others' point yeah. of view. And when we have that aliveness, that 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 quality of being open to others, one has in there also that sense of, of humor God. and yes. that, that combination then when you take it to its highest levels of what I call the bitter and the sweet where if you think of the Dalai Lama and you think of the serenity of his being and the smiles and chuckles they aren't you know from an immature being or they aren't just sort of light heartedness they are in fact you know this being who knows that his people are suffering great tragedy, great loss. And it is the serenity of peace that goes through that suffering to this place of lightness, to this knowing that ultimately the only way for us to evolve as a species is to go the path of peace. Yes, indeed. That's beautiful. I, there's another point that I'd love for you to speak about, which I, I so appreciate it which is this idea that peace, and it's not that it's a new idea, that peace is a challenge, but you framed it in a way, James, that peace is, you could say, the ultimate human challenge because there's so much in our history that sort of argues against it. And we know what it takes just on a personal level to remain peaceful that to do so as a collective is so challenging that you could say it's like, I wish we could almost turn it into an Olympic sport and see what happens and who wins, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, you know, I know in my own career that as I faced those issues of injustice and war and exploitation and on the planet and living in a place like Beirut during the war and seeing the mass yeah. and feeling this deep moral outrage about the nature of humanity. For me, climbing that mountain, climbing that mountain of hope, you know, the only tools I saw immediately at hand were legal, prosecute them, prosecute the violators, create international standards so this stuff can't happen. Yes. Uh, at the same time, you know, expressing this moral outrage and this moral fury. And now what we're seeing is there are so many other capacities, there's so many other elements that have come to the table of peace 
We have psychology, death psychology, wonderful, individual and collective social psychology. We have all of that mediation skills and capacities for peace building and peacemaking. And we have nonviolent communication skills. Yes. A whole range of dialogic capacities. So as I look now at those skills, you know, the mountain seems to be less daunting in that sense, that challenge that we're speaking about, that as we climb out of despair, we really have these other elements that can give us great hope. And my own experience has been very, very much that you walk towards the suffering. You don't walk away from it. And Mm. my teachers have been survivors of genocide and cruelty of the most outrageous form who say that once you go through the pain the mystery unfolds that you become somehow more capacitated more compassionate more connected to other people's suffering more able to deal with it and if you lock it away and of course we know the neurological circuitry of the story we know the biochemistry of locking it away We push it down and it waits as this form of energy, as our humble and obedient servant 20, 30, 40 years later when we've got high blood pressure or ulcers or whatever and that energy is still saying, do you attend to me? Can you feel my pain? And eventually when we turn, it's not morose. It's actually the releasing of the victimhood stations which is my final point here, Mitchell, is that again and again I've seen the tragedy of people traumatized and victimized and then attaching themselves to the wound. How bitter that is that the victim then goes through a long process of being unable to release their own victimhood status. And yet when they do, they transcend their suffering and they become beacons for other people. Mm, beautifully put, James. That's really true. It's so a lot of suffering has a lot to do. Number one, just to sort of uh, translate a little bit or recapitulate a little of what I hear you saying, it's as though we our path seems to require a bitter collective dark night of the soul, and if we have the courage to pass through those portals, we will come through, in a sense, liberated psychologically and emotionally with a depth and capacity for compassion that we did not have prior to that night. Yes. and That's that one we, part I hear. Yes. Yeah, please, go on. Well, just, yes, and that sense that in the dark night... There is this opportunity if we release, if we forgive, just as they did in South Africa in the Truth and Reconciliation Yes, exactly. Process. The Truth and Reconciliation. Exactly. And the other part is that you made well, very well is this notion of releasing, of letting go of that which has uh, bound us through trauma. And it's easy to say and difficult to do, and I think it's really important for the audience to know that we know that one does not forgive easily necessarily. One does not let go of an identity that one might have been raised with if one were traumatized in war 
or child trafficking as an as a young one, you know, that becomes part of an identity. Yet, it does need to be released. I interviewed, I don't know if you know the name David Berselli, but he has done a tremendous amount of trauma release work in war-torn countries around the world and um, has taught people a form of bioenergetics to help them release those identities and to, like animals do, shake off physically, shake off and emotionally the identity and the trauma that got locked into their cells. It's beautiful work. He's yeah, had very powerful work. And what we discover when we go through this is that what we're holding is toxic, you know. Yeah. Professor Worthington at the University of Virginia who taught forgiveness work for many years and taught it in those terms that you you have to release the state, the toxic state of unforgiveness comes home one evening and finds his mother has been bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat and he talks about exactly what you're talking about, the scalding sulfuric acid, the boiling contempt, the fury, the outrage and yet if the consciousness can then see that that cauldron is toxic to oneself and that yes. what one is doing is the ultimate self-love and self-care and self-healing to release that toxic cauldron, then one becomes a light for humanity. Oh, my. Exactly, exactly. It's, for some reason, it's hard for people to get that it is we ourselves who are suffering most from the anger or the outrage while there's of course a place in the in the panorama of human experience and emotion god knows for indignation and outrage moral etc at the same time uh it's one thing for it to be felt it's another thing for it to be held onto uh, you know, and we're doing ourselves damage. We know enough in neuroscience these days. God knows you uh, at the Institute for Noetic Sciences with such senior scientists as uh, Dean Radin, who we've also had on the show, and others who have shown us beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're really hardwired for joy and peace and bliss and service. And uh, you make these points beautifully also in your book. Um, yes, and what I yeah, think please. is absolutely correct, that we have all these things that you're saying, and at the same time, we don't want to make anger bad. We don't want to make it wrong. No. You know, as Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, think of anger as that raw energy that if properly directed becomes like electricity, it becomes light. Yes. So... Beautiful. We don't channel that energy. We don't want to make it wrong. It's a it's sort of a collective tool. But as as you know, when our activism is consumed by that, then we burn out. And exactly. That's so different in the peace story is the integration of this consciousness science, this mind body health science, with the courage and the capacity to step into the fire. Mahatma Gandhi also said it would be easier to give sight to a blind person than to teach nonviolence to a coward. Ooh. Oh, my. I mean, 
that we must have courage. Yes. Yes. Powerful. I never heard that. Oh, Gandhi, <laughs> you've done it once again. <laughs> wow. I'd really like to take a moment and ask you something that's just been puzzling me, really, James. And uh, as I told you, I had Jack Haley on the show from Amnesty International many, many years ago, well over a decade. And this is a a wonderful new opportunity to be chatting with you. As I've been contemplating uh, this evening's uh, radio show with you, and contemplating your work at Amnesty, which is truly one of the great organizations of the planet. It's also the place where the worst, the lowest, the weakest link of humanity shows up because you're forced to deal with the most difficult characters, the greatest pathology literally on the planet. And I was just wondering, maybe you could just talk to us a little bit. What was it like to wake up every day as the director of the Washington office and go into work knowing you were facing some of these most egregious, heart-rending events that you would learn of and be unfolded day after day? Well, it certainly... How did you do it? One had to have that sense, almost frantic sense, that if I give some more energy, I can rescue somebody from the torture slab. There was this constant burning need to be even more creative than the governments that were doing these terrible things to stop them. And so there was that energy of you know, sitting down with my staff, how will we testify here? How will we meet this president? How will we storm this embassy or whatever? I remember, for example, one day, um, it was one of those receptions in Washington, which you, again, had to go to because Amnesty does the the behind-the-scenes work. And I remember meeting the Yemeni ambassador at the time and thinking to myself only one thought, He's a good guy. He's a good guy. And then some months later, I got a call from London, from the headquarters in London, saying, look, they're about to execute six Yemenis, and we think that it's a totally politically contrived thing that uh, these people are innocent, and, and we must stop it. And I got on the phone, and I had pretty good phone skills at you know, get me to the ambassador, you know, yes. all, all the barriers that you meet along the way, knocking those yes. barriers over until you get... When I got him on the phone, I said, Mr. Ambassador, six people are going to be executed in three days, and you and I can stop it. And I am simply saying to you as one human being to another, let's do it. And here's how we do it. You cable your government, you inform your government that Amnesty International is going to call for congressional hearings, there's going to be press conferences, and that your government couldn't can do without the bad publicity at this time. Do anything you can to help us save these lives. And he he didn't say much on the phone. He said, I have heard your passionate plea, Mr. O.D. Thank you. Goodbye. But you know what? Those six mm-hmm. people were never executed. And I can tell you, when you go home at the end of the day and you think there are six people today 
whose lives I saved. Oh, right. I'm getting a bit emotional here. It's something Ooh. that you really feel like I've done a good day's work. Oh my God, yes. Oh, so you're saying there is a payoff for the difficulty in getting to work in the first place. The payoff is so great when you succeed. What a story, James. Thank you for sharing that. But you know, in the end, I just reaches in. I got very burned out in some ways. And I remember very close to the time before I left Amnesty, the young kid, Iqbal Masi, you know, he was four years old when he was shackled to a loom in Pakistan, part of the carpet industry. And at age eight and a half, he escaped and became a voice for children persecuted in this way in Pakistan. And uh, at age 11, we had him brought to the United States for to receive the Reebok Human Rights Award. Iqbal Masi was his name. And, yes. Uh, he At age 12, he was murdered. He was riding on his bicycle, and he was shot to death. Oh, and I came home with one of those clouds, you know, and we yes. sit with my three sons around the dinner table, and we would go in a circle, and and I was first up, and I told the boys, look, this was my day, and I'm just very sad at the death of Iqbal Masi. And then uh, my youngest son was up next, and without blinking, I mean, God bless him, he said, and I scored a goal in soccer today. (laughs) And uh, I realized at this moment, I've got to move on. I, I, I felt so much that I, I, I wanted to proselytize my own kids. And each of them afterwards came up and kind of touched me in a way and acknowledged that they really had heard me. But he was overwhelmed with the excitement. And that's how life should be. That's right. You know, that's life goes on. So in the end, I moved and I moved out of a framework of looking for the bad guys of let's find and prosecute these terrible people who are torturing and murdering. And who are the you know who are the people on the right side and who are the people who are wrong? And I moved into a frame in those dialogues that you mentioned that I did around the world. Yes. Of not who's right and who's wrong, but who's wounded and how did they get so wounded that they would do these things? So we yes. begin to look for the wound in hiding in the social order. Yes. Grave things like this happen. You know, even the yes. tragedy in Colorado. I now have a mental framework where I say, what wound does this come from? Where is the wound that creates exactly. kinds of... Exactly. That's, that's high intelligence at work. This is where wisdom comes into the human picture and that it's got to be called upon in society, as you so well put it just now, James. And it's, uh, it's unfortunately a little barren of this quality that we all have a capacity for. And it's one of the reasons I have so cottoned in my life to uh, the teachings of uh, Buddhist psychology, but certainly you'll find it in all traditions, 
but it's those places, including Western psychotherapy, where you reach in and find your heart and realize that it's the wound that we all have in common, in fact, to varying degrees, as you point, as you're implying. And when we can get in touch with that, there's no make wrong, but there is how can we make this right? There's uh, another spirit, you could say, that's present. You are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, please visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.tv. We are on every week at 6 o'clock on Blog Talk Radio. And we are spending the entire show cultivating peace with peacemaker James O.D., so, James, again, it's just such a pleasure to have you on today. Well, it's great to have a kindred soul like yourself, Mitchell. <laughs> Indeed. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Thanks for fielding all of that difficult uh, terrain with uh, amnesty, but God bless you and your work. It's so fabulous. Let's move on to um, sort of uh, the next step that cultivating peace is really um, – is really up to, which is how to create peacemakers and peace ambassadors in the 21st century. God knows we need it in a world that's literally besieged with dozens of wars, major and minor, most undeclared across the planet, all the way from the macro levels of people bombing and drones flying to the inner quieter wars that are raging inside people that uh, bubble up sort of like in Colorado, which I, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I see so much as a symptom of our society, much more about that than about a particular individual, but rather him as part of a, a sociological symptom of a world that's boiling over quite literally because of such issues as global warming and climate change and our wrestling with the moral issues that as a society it doesn't seem we really want to tackle head on and as a result we are suppressing them and Freud and Jung warned us against that so did Otto Rank and Wilhelm Reich to not suppress your emotions as you were saying earlier and have given rise to this kind of um, collective madness it's truly a psychosis and how is it that your experience has brought you to a place where you feel there really is the potential for peace when we look around and it looks like uh, it's been buried. Well, yes, I mean, that sense of uh, people have, or some people have, they say, peace has gone away, you know, there are no protests in the street, people aren't angry enough anymore. Yeah, you know, right. The peace movement has died, and I say, well, peace as a slogan may have died, you know, Peace. Yeah. What do we want? Peace. When do we want it? Now. Now. Now is a wonder bread illusion. It's just. Yes. It's about creating a culture of peace. And I say mm -hmm. for every, you know, peace protest banner that's gathering dust in someone's attic, there's a teacher yeah. in the classroom who's doing highly transformational work, who's going to the heart, to the emotional body of the students, who's really 
in there as peacemakers, therapists, social workers, nurses, doctors, teachers. So we've climbed the walls. We're no longer screaming at the gates. We've climbed the walls, mm. working inside yes. the system. And that's the great news. So while we're giving less energy to protest, we're actually giving more energy to creating those systemic solutions from the inside out. And that takes a lot of maturity to say, I'm willing to go into the system to transform it. I'm willing to be patient. I'm really willing to cultivate peace, to create a culture of peace, of nonviolence in my home, to teach my kids respectful ways to speak to each other, to learn mediation and dialogue skills. And I believe, Mitchell, truly, I'm not just using a language system here, mm -hmm. that there mm -hmm. is a sleeping giant of peace about to rise up, that there's a whole maturation in the culture. It hasn't, unfortunately, reached our politicians, who seem to yeah. be kind of stage caricatures of what infantile, adolescent, mudslinging behavior is all about. Yeah. But the average person, the so-called average person, is yeah. really maturing. You go to the workplace, to the school, begin to see what is really, and the family life, begin to see what's really transformational energy that's rising in the culture. So the book really is about, is for those, you know, for several weeks on Amazon, it was number one and number two in family issues and relationships. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. A contemporary book about peace and the civilization and the culture of peace is number one ranking on family relationship issues. Because again, I think Amazon was getting it. When you look at this book, it's about how to live inside a culture of peace, how to learn to listen to each other. And we think listening is just, as one example, is just so automatic. Well, I know how to listen. Well, I hope you read <laughs> Cultivating Peace and the chapter on listening because you see Wow. Listen again, in other words. Listen again. <laughs> yes. The dimensions of listening are truly incredible. And you can get to this place of deep, heart-centered, compassionate listening. Listening yes. with your heart and your mind together. And we, we know from some of that esoteric science that we were talking about that, in fact, yes. you know, they had Palestinians and Israelis in dialogue and as researchers like to do, they wired them up. Yes. And they found that the person who was listening from this deep, deep heart-centered place was actually shifting and calming the amygdala of the other yeah. person. The amygdala, that place in the sure. brain that's the alarm station that says, you know, there may be danger or something. To exactly. The reptilian function. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Our listening can create that field of limbic resonance that allows then for the other person to open up. So I say, wow, look at all these new elements in the toolkit of the peacemaker that are combining neuroscience, mind-body health, psychology. All of these elements are now pouring in as new, new approaches, new learning styles, new toolkits for the peacemaker yes exactly I, I, so beautifully put and I, I so agree as a long standing holistic psychotherapist and coach 
stress management consultant, I deal with listening as a large part of my job, my friend. And so I so appreciate that chapter and your points right now because it's uh it's a multifaceted uh fascinating multifascinating for sure and multifaceted <laughs> art of listening. You know, and you can listen on so many different levels and framing the listening as being a way of uh, stepping into the shoes of your uh, of the speaker. And of course, now we have the language of neuroscience, such as mirror neurons. And we now know that as we listen, we are literally mirroring back the neurological headset, no pun intended, of the speaker. So we're literally conjoining with them on some very interesting level that is virtually measurable at this point in time. And it allows for an empathy so that in, as you make reference in your book, often to the unified and unifying field as a, um, you know, as an adjective, uh, you know, we're really creating. That really creates a culture of peace right there. Absolutely. And now we're into kind of sizzling stuff, really, because yeah. this science tells us that not only can we listen, but we can tune into each other energetically. So I have you know, a chapter on energy mastery and peacemaking. Yes. It's not flippant at all. It's saying exactly what you're saying, Mitchell that reading another person's energy fluently is an essential skill for a peacemaker. It not only allows you to be empathic and to stand in their shoes, but to get out of the way when you need to, not to yeah. jumping into things that when you read the energy, you see, you know what, I'll be wasting my time if I come at it from this direction. I have to kind of do an Aikido here. Look yes. at how the person is processing their energy. You know, and so I, I talk about different styles of energy processing and how to learn how to read them so that we can do this masterful peacemaking that our emergence in consciousness and the new science and all of the commitment of peace building together and the new convergence to give us the tools to do really advanced peace building work together. Yeah, you know, I mentioned uh, Dennis Kucinich, Congressman Kucinich, at the top of the show, James, because, uh, number one, for me, he's uh, an outstanding congressperson and one of the very few who is not subject to the madness of the others and all that you were referring to earlier so appropriately. Uh, and he called, if you remember, some years back for a Department of Peace. And it was such a brilliant idea that nobody picked up on it. And to me, a Department of Peace instead of a Department of War or Defense would have helped to really take the idea of creating a culture of peace forward in a really meaningful way. If I find this, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, when we create consensus around a subject, then it begins to take root in the mainstream of society. And if Dennis Kucinich could have had his way, or if there were an intelligent politician or president, 
it seems like it's antithetical to have intelligence in the White House living in the same place. Don't get it. But um, really, I mean, heart-centered intelligence, that is, that heart math talks about and, you know, heart coherence. If we had that, people would be thinking about how to create and live by and inside peace instead of what we have today, which is literally a culture and consensus around war. Iran is bubbling, and it's a political football. And those of us who see what we see know that. There's nothing real about it. It's all a, a mirage that would, unfortunately, cost a huge amount of lives and a huge number uh, of dollars, you know? Your comments. Yes, I, I think the root of some of this issue comes in the cognate or the thought form that people have or the impression they have when you say the word peace. Yes. And it means something that's opposite of war, and yet what we're speaking about and what the Department of Peace initiative is about is about that culture. It's about how yes. we live healthier, nonviolent lives, less stressful lives. How do we learn to negotiate better, to mediate better, to dialogue? How do we deal with domestic violence, with the roots of violence, which we, you know, get trapped in the field, gets transmitted from generation to generation, pops up in various places, but that visionary work that says let's look at a dynamic relationship to peace peace as you know, abundant masterful creative energy yes. so in tune with your own creative stuff so as you know in the book I hammer this issue a lot of it's about your creativity it's about your call to being you know somebody yes. said to me who were you at, at age seven and what were you dreaming? And who were the people who enabled that, who saw you? Those were the great peacemakers in your own life. The person, mm. I see you, I see what you're capable of and who called you forth. That's what we're looking at in peacemaking now is that calling each other forth mm. to dynamic creativity and and the notion that the Department of Peace could, which sounds very static and stale yeah. in some ways, you know, yeah. sounds a bit stodgy, but actually could be right in the heart of this kind of creativity, I think to me is very exciting. And I do need yeah. politicians. I wrote a, a blog for Huffington Post, which I do occasionally, about the three qualifications for you know, mature politicians, and one of them has to be empathy, doesn't it? It really has to yes. be capacity to stand in the shoes of the others. And the other has to be the capacity to dialogue. You're simply great at throwing insults at other people. Please just don't go into politics because <laughs> yes. it needs a little progress. And go into wrestling. <laughs> right, and the third is what I call the capacity to to represent the whole and to be a systems thinker is 
needed more than ever as we see this fragmentation oh. of economy and ecology, two systems almost at war with each other, which are really a part of one greater system. So, you know, when I was a young boy in London, I, we moved from Ireland to England. I received an award for being the teenager of the year, organizing young people to really <laughs> look at what was needed for senior citizens in London. Oh. got a lot of publicity, and the head of the Welfare Authority in London wrote to me and said, it seems as if you've got some important criticisms of our work, and I'd so appreciate it if you would come and have this conversation with me personally. Well, as a 16-year-old, you know, this was quite a thing to have gone yeah. this far. But I was an adolescent still, and even yeah. though I might have been a visionary one, I wrote back to him and I said, you know what you need to do, and when you do it, we can meet. <laughs> uh, which is acceptable. <laughs> this is acceptable in an adolescent. But these yeah. politicians uh, in our time are still speaking to each other. Yes, <laughs> that was a, that's a good story. That's really ballsy, if you don't mind my saying. You know. Oh, that's brilliant, though. I love it. It's, now, at this age, it's arrogant. That's and right. That's right. I could afford to be that way. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, I wanted to, you know, I, I came up with it. You're right. It's a little stodgy. I came up with a, maybe a solution, James. It could be called the Department of Playful Peacemaking. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that will be a new day when we will be free enough to 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 be so playful. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Oh, would that be delicious? Listen, I'd like to take our attention for a moment and, and point it in the direction of Israel and Palestine and possibly also Rwanda because these are places where you have gone to do some uh, social healing. I love that phrase, by the way. And um, mediation work, reconciliation work. What was it like? Could you just give us a little sense of that? Well, let and me just, were you able to employ this wisdom that you're bringing forward in this book and in your stories here to yes. those contexts? Let me just make a, a brief political point. I think it's tragic that uh, Governor Romney, in his trip to Israel, said to the Israelis, it is your culture which makes you wealthier than the Palestinians. What a what an unfortunate way Strange. of oh. of yeah. of comparing one culture which is, you know, oppressed and under occupation and yeah. so forth. So it's clearly yeah. something that we have to really respect and honor culture and yeah. each culture its own unique and diverse way to achievement and that achievement isn't always about economic sustainability but i'll tell Correct. you that my teachers in israel and palestine you know were people like the shahak family whose daughter was blown up in a terrorist bombing and uh, they were of course they went through that, that rage that you would experience and finally when sure. they were clearing out her room they found her diary and one of her last entries in her diary was, I dream of peace with the Palestinians. 
and mm. so moved. They had no idea that her, their daughter had these feelings. That yes. they out in their pain, and they said to other Israeli and Palestinian families, if you who have lost children or relatives in this violence are in as much pain as we're in, let's end the story. Let's change the story. They've yes. a magnificent organization, the family of the bereaved. Mm. Peace, mm. social healing initiatives we did there was, you know, with Jessica Benjamin, you may know her there, famous psychiatrist out of New York, but a mm -hmm. mutual acknowledgement process between Israeli psychiatrists, social, social workers, psychologists, and the same on the Palestinian side. And it was called mutual acknowledgement. I am now going to acknowledge something I've never acknowledged before about, I think, the, what is the nature of your suffering and your pain. And because I have stood in that place of acknowledgement, can you feed me by mutually acknowledge, by acknowledging back what you think might be the nature of my situation and my challenges? Mm. Very powerful work. Just simply mutual acknowledgement. We can spend a lifetime saying, well, I'm suffering more than you, and we suffered more than you here and there and then and in this way and and that becomes like the contest of who suffered most exactly say, I can acknowledge something it's about another that. fight it's another form of violence actually yes yeah I can reach out and say I, I I just want to acknowledge what I think is your suffering it opens the door so much you bet and, and I and, and I so feel Mitchell that it is so-called average people who, who do get on with it, you know, like the mother in Rwanda who forgave the murderers of her children. Mm. Genocide. I mean, frankly, mm. that's such a huge journey to take. Oh. Many of us find it inconceivable. And yet yes. you can get to this place of understanding and knowing that people get whipped up into these feelings and that the ultimate justice really through reconciliation and forgiveness and the healing of society. And I was allowed to participate in the Gachacha trials in Rwanda and really see communities talking to each other. How did this happen to us? Why did we listen to the government that t said, you know, the Tutsis are cockroaches? Why, how, how were we so stupid and... I was mm. so evil, but just, you know, a, a justice process that allowed that truth-telling to go on and on and on until mm. society started to heal. And really, this has been a tremendous healing in Rwanda. So even though I've been someone who, through my work in Amnesty and my work in the world, has been taken into the darkest places of the world and the deepest of suffering, it is from that place that I speak with my voice and say, I am hopeful. I am deeply hopeful about the survival of our planet and actually the emergence of a civilization of peace. Because I see when you scratch a little deeper, the so-called average people is the sleeping giant in our collective consciousness, evolved mm. towards our higher capacities, integrating new capacities 
for altruism. Oh, that is so beautiful. I so embrace and endorse that, James. <laughs> it was really excellently and elegantly put and uh, truly heartfelt. I, Yeah, I, I so am in accord with what you're saying. And um, I... I just truly want to uh, acknowledge you for the good work that you have been doing for so many years and your commitment to peace on this planet. And uh, it just, uh, it's awesome to see and bear witness to someone who has just been so um, open and heartfelt and involved in this process, as you said, in the darkest corners of our planet, and that you, in this day, after all you've seen, all you've seen and tasted and heard and experienced, would be hopeful about our future, based on what it is you see, the elements coming together, is, um, is a blessing for all of us who are listening to you. So I, I really want to convey that to you. Thank you so much, Michelle, and thank you for such a rich and deep conversation. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. It's mutual, my friend, truly. Uh, so thank you. What, give your website, if you would, so yes. people can get on the bandwagon of creative peacemaking and playful yes. peacemaking, please. Yes, that's good, that <laughs> playfulness in there. <laughs> Uh, it's jamesod.com that's jamesodea.com and there you out about cultivating peace the book about the courses I network on becoming a peace ambassador and intensive Wonderful. leadership development and may your Wonderful. work thrive Mitchell and may new media that you represent and the kind of thoughtful, heartful, conscious media you are bringing to the table. May you may it flourish because we need it so much in this time. Indeed. Thank you, James. I so appreciate it. I thank you, and uh, we'll talk again and see what more we can do together to help bring these good messages forward. Indeed. God bless. Bye-bye now. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Oh, my word. That was just, as he said, deep and heartfelt. And uh, for those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, beautiful man who is bringing so much to the table. And this is the new thriving conscious media. And we are bringing forward humanity to another level. And it is important that this be recognized and listened to by an increasing number of people. So please do tell your friends and your family and your colleagues about A Better World Radio and TV and become part of it simply by listening. And please write to me at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's my initials, mjr at abetterworld.net. Join our newsletter at abetterworld.tv, where it says newsletter. Our shows are in archive. You can listen going back seven years for free. And if you would, think about making a donation to our program through our website. There's a donation button right there 
love to have you. And we're also looking for sponsors. So please come become a sponsor of A Better World so we can continue our sustaining, heartfelt, harmonious work. Thanks again for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.